Thank you, Becky. Good morning, everybody. Fairly serious reading, that second one. It's an extraordinary moment. Um, Stoning of Stephen. This morning, I want to talk about, really, where I want to get, is I want us to ask ourselves, where is our confidence in times of great peril? Where is our security and our hope in times of great trouble? That was the killing of Stephen. First Christian recorded at least to be killed for his faith. And he looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus standing there. The victorious one, the mighty one. I wonder, is your confidence in the one who will never fail you? The one who stands in heaven? I'm just going to pray very briefly and then I want to ask you another question. Father, please just open our ears now. Whoever we are and however close or far from you we might feel this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, each and every one. Speak to our hearts, Lord, that we may hear your word afresh. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Ewan said it, not me. It's a bit echoey up here. I'm not sure if that's... um, Again, can you hear it? Hear me okay? Ewan said it, not me. He is to be blamed. He mentioned Christmas, not me. Um, it's always who's going to be the first to say it each year um, and it was Ewan so well done <laughs> um, but it is getting cold right I just took the kids downstairs it's freezing out there it is becoming chilly to say the least who here has got their central heating on who here has relented still no not until yes David PG I knew one would not until December come on David come on you can do it eke it out <laughs> we'll huddle around a piece of coal. We're going to be fine. Um, I like that. <laughs> the latest, the latest, you can turn it on. Um, but it means that the kids can't go out as much. I'm a daddy of four kids, as many of you know, and they can't be in the garden quite as much as they were. Um, so we're indoors a bit more, so we've got to find things to do. It is the season, really, where indoor games become uh, the thing that we play, and I want to play more and more as we lead towards Christmas. Games have the ability of bringing out the very best in us, actually. <laughs> Family fun, laughter, right? I love the fact you laughed, because we all know, we all know games have the ability to bring the very worst out in us, right? Isn't it true? Who here likes playing games? Okay, what's your favourite game? Really quickly, what are the games? What if it, let's play a game, Matt. What are we going to, Risk? That, who said that? That's quite a serious game, that. I don't know how to play that, but that's like you're there all day, isn't it, with things. Risk is... Not with you, okay. (laughs) Don't play Steve at risk. Any other favourites? Chess, Scrabble, Red Rum. I think that's a drink, actually. I think it's got the wrong wrong idea. (laughs) What is Red Rum? Is that a card game, I assume? Someone said it? Board game. Banana grams, again, that sounds like a pudding, but I'm sure it's a game. Well, hey, what? Mexican train. Well, you're going to have to Google that one later if you don't know what that is. Say again. Settlers of Catan. We're showing off now. What is this all about? Whatever happened to Ludo and a little dice? I mean, come on. 
I can't even say that one, Ian. Carcawat? Carcassonne. 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 Sorry, it was your accent, Ian, you know. You didn't quite give it the je ne sais quoi. Who here, who here is really competitive? Let's be honest. Yeah, I love the fact there's a slight sort of, yeah, sorry about that. The family all around go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who here loves winning? Yeah, yeah. you all want to win. Um, games have the capacity to bring the worst out because we want to win, don't we? I mean, we, we have some favourite games as, when I was growing up, card games, you know, Uno, we played it the other day with some friends. It's such a good game, but there's that moment where you put a card down and the next person has to do what you put down. So you put pick up four. And the little faces drop if it's your kids. And you go, oh, and you take it back again. You think, I better not deal them that. But eventually you do and someone cries and runs off. It's not fair. Well, it's the game. I'm sorry. Some people do anything to win though, right? Um... Like when you finish a game and you find three cards hidden under the table. Hey! Whose were they sneaking them? Or under a cushion tucked down the side of the sofa. Games sometimes bring the worst out in us. Like that moment when you're playing Monopoly and you look across and you've, you've landed on somebody's hotel on Pall Mall and the smug face and the smirk as they go, hand over the money. I've flipped the board, yeah! I'll hand that over to you. Um, we love to win, or lots of us do in games, but at the end of the day, whoever wins or loses, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's a game. I mean, it's just a game. Yet there are times in life, aren't there, when we use the language of winning and losing about something far more serious than a game. We use the same language, but we suddenly speak of something that's far from fun or superficial or just anything. There are times when a nation finds itself at war. There are times when we get caught up in conflict and war. And the entire nation, if you think back even to the Second World War, the economy, the production, the energy, the education, the focus, it all becomes about winning this war. The whole nation knows that losing could be catastrophic. But the truth is, when it comes to war, even for the nation that wins, it doesn't change the fact that war is always catastrophic. There's a famous quote, war is hell. There is a sense of winning for some, and we might remember back to VE Day and the celebrations. I've seen the photos, beautiful celebrations, 8th of May 1945, wasn't it? Nazis' unconditional surrender in Europe, finally a sense of jubilation after six horrific, hard-fought years. The Allies had finally won and we had defeated a dark and appalling force in Nazism, an ideology that was truly wicked. And yet the costs had been horrendous, hadn't it? Hadn't it? The damage had been appalling, the suffering untold, the violence and death and fear and darkness had ravaged so much of the world for so long And the joy on that day wasn't just because we won some kind of a game, but because it was all over. And finally, there might be peace again. Finally, we have stopped something evil and peace has come. You see, war actually has the capacity to bring out the very worst side of humanity. It can do that and does do that. Violence and greed and domination and suffering and destruction and condemnation 
and judgment, fear and death and darkness and despair. And war so very often just reflects the very worst side of the way of mankind that has come to the surface again and again over the millennia throughout history, time and time and time again. The way of human beings has been to kill, control, pillage and conquer other human beings. Time and again, nations and people groups have sought a sense of conquest and victory and significance through violence and pride and domination. Victory through violence, victory through domination. And countless wars have been started honestly so needlessly by those who simply wanted more or who wanted land who wanted riches, who wanted to destroy a people group they didn't like, leaders who want to become famous or infamous, right? Ideologies of superiority and hate and brutality. And wars always cause carnage, such carnage and darkness and fear, all because of mankind's desire to dominate and win. Over and over again, throughout history, one nation rises up and dominates and crushes others, And for a season they precariously rule supreme only to be destroyed before too long by another nation that rises up and destroys them. The next nation that rises up, create a name for itself, an empire in which to gloat from and become rich from. And still today we see the same. Just as you and read in the psalm earlier, nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall. Thousands of years ago that psalm was written in a time of great peril. And tragically, behind it all, there are real people and families and children, terrified and fearful and displaced and murdered, enslaved and killed, bloodshed, insecurity and peril. And on a day like today, we do not revel in or marvel at the beauty of war, but the dark reality of it all, the cost, the tragic cost of it all. As the book of Proverbs says, chapter 16, 25, we heard it last week for those that were there. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to man and has done throughout the ages, but its end is the way to death. Yet whilst war has the capacity to bring out the very worst in mankind, perhaps surprisingly, during war, we're also able to often see the very best of mankind drawn out, aren't we? For there are times when it is right to refuse to let injustice and cruelty and evil and suffering to prevail. Sometimes amidst all the violence and the suffering, death and despair, there are moments of extraordinary bravery, of true humility, of gritted determination and commitment, of genuine justice of rightly defending and freeing the weak and the oppressed and the vulnerable, of not standing by and saying, it's okay, we'll turn the other eye to that, we'll just look the other way. And there are moments when an individual understands a cause cause to be so much greater than their own needs, their own pleasures, their own life, that that individual willingly gives everything to defend it or to protect it or to win peace for others, not for themselves. Amidst it all, we see moments of genuine love as one human being sacrifices themselves for the good of another. It's hugely humbling. And in fact, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. On a day like this, we also remember the bravery and the sacrifice of all those 
who, yes, in the great wars going back, great not because they were good, great because they were huge, who had given themselves for others, who had paid the ultimate price, who still willingly chose to give of themselves. And we remember those today who still do the same, put themselves at risk to protect the ways of peace. And we honour them. We honour them. For these moments, actually, I want to suggest this morning, these moments, the moments that move us so much, the moments that get our attention, the moments where we see there's something different going on behind all this swagger and bravado and violence and domination, there are these moments of such poignant sacrifice and self-sacrifice and humility. I want to suggest that these moments point us to a different way. A way that God has been speaking to mankind about from the beginning. A way that the Bible invites us to discover. There is a way, Proverbs says, that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And it goes on to say, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like scorching fire. This is the way of mankind. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbour and leads him to a way that is not good. Whoever winks his eye plans dishonest things. He who pursues, who purses his lips brings evil to pass. And yet, it goes on to say, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Where the way that seems right to man leads not to victory, but only to death, there is a way, friends, I want to say again this morning, that leads to life. This other way is God's way, and it's a way that he longs for us to know and embrace. As Ewan read in that psalm, where nations rise up against nations and kingdoms fall, God says, be still, stop, and know that I am God. Not you. I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations, God says. I will be exalted in all the earth. God is saying that a day is coming when his way will be truly known. And I want to suggest that that day came or began to break in 2,000 years ago when he chose to come to the earth. When God himself chose to come himself so that he might truly be exalted in the nations, the almighty, the powerful creator of all the universe. He came to dwell amongst mankind and show them the way of victory. And how did he come? He did not fight to win all that he deserved, a golden throne. No, he was prepared to be born in a rubbish manger to a poor family. He did not come bearing a sword. He came bearing a towel to wash the feet of the dirty. He did not seek the rich and the powerful and the proud and the strong. He hung out with the poor and the broken and the rejected and the losers. The Word became flesh, the Bible says, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, and you imagine what that might be 
The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Strength and brutality, no, full of grace and full of truth. That's how God came. When Jesus came, he came to show us that victory doesn't come through violence, pride and domination, but through sacrifice and humility and grace. This is the way of God. This is the way of life. Yet it was a way his disciples simply couldn't understand. When, Lord, are you going to fight? If you read through the Gospels, when are you going to do it, Lord? When are you going to finally rise up? I know you're going to do it. We all know you're waiting your time. When are you going to do it and finally destroy our enemies? Finally destroy the armies, the, the Romans? When, Lord, when? Instead, Jesus said, no, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I will be killed. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? And even towards the end, this is possibly one of my most favourite scenes in the Passion narrative, that, that, that story, that part where we focus in on Jesus' last days. Even towards the end, when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter swings out his sword and strikes one of the officers or the soldiers that are trying to arrest Jesus. Do you remember the bit? They come finally to take him at night and he gets out his sword and he goes, it's all right, Jesus, I'm going to hold him back. And Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, Peter. And then he says something extraordinary. He says, don't you get it? And these are my words, my interpretation, not quite literal from the Bible. You can look it up. But he basically says, Peter, don't you understand? I could click my fingers and in a moment, 12 legions of angels, of heaven's armies, more glorious, more powerful than you could ever imagine, would come straight away and would wipe the floor with anyone and everyone. And then you'd know, but that's not what I'm here to do. I choose to go freely now. I choose to go to the cross. That chokes me up when I think that Jesus had all that power. And yet, he chose to lay it aside. And even on the cross, the Son of God himself, the majestic, the perfect, the sinless, the powerful Lord of all, worthy of all our honour and praise, honestly, the most spectacular and beautiful and powerful, most wonderful Lord, Instead, he let humanity mock him and spit on him and laugh at him and whip him and drive cruel nails through his hands and feet. And even as they mocked and jeered him and played games with him and tied his eyes before the cross and said, hey, which one of us is kicking you if you're so clever? Even before they did all of this, he was just quiet and humble. And as he was hung on that cross even as they continued to mock. He just said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Gosh, God, did you really do that? Yes, he did. Jesus did that. Lord, strike them down now. Be gone, and they'd have fallen to the floor. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realise who I am. On that cross, Jesus showed a violent and proud humanity another way. He showed that the greatest love of all was not just dying for friends, but dying for those who hated him and despised him and tortured and rejected him. Dying for you and dying for me. He was my age, just under, 
when he hung on that cross and died. And even though it looked like the way of death, this was in fact the way to true life. For on that cross, Jesus was finally paying the price for the way of mankind. He was finally paying paying the price for every wicked and awful and prideful and violent and evil deed you and I have ever done and humanity has ever done. He was paying the price for all the violence and murder and suffering and shame. He was taking on your sin. He was taking on mine. And he was giving his life, perfect and blameless though he was, he was giving everything, taking it all on himself so that if we trust in him, we can be forgiven and set free from the lot of it. No longer are we judged as we should be. We are set free and considered forgiven and perfect in his eyes. And as he took his final breath, he cried out loud, It is finished. The way of mankind, the dominion, the domination, it is finished. The ways of violence and darkness and fear have been defeated. And now even death itself was torn in two for three days later on the third day. The king of kings would rise victorious, having bust death apart, alive again. That way has been defeated. Sin, death, darkness had now opened instead the way to eternal life for all who would come to Jesus. As Becky read, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts, says the prophet Isaiah. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts, says God. Gosh. His way seemed the way of foolishness, weakness and death, and yet it was the way of humility, love and sacrifice, the way that brings us life in all its fullness, eternal life, hope and surety and certainty. Friends, the final triumphant victory over death and darkness and fear and peril has been won. It's been won by Jesus. And yet we live in a time when so much of the world is yet to realise this. God is patient. We are in the in-between times. He is calling humanity to turn from their ways and turn to him and turn to Jesus and follow him until the day when he comes and wraps up all of history as we know it. And that day is coming when he comes again in glory. This time you're not going to mistake him. And yet so many still reject God and so many still think Jesus is irrelevant. So many people throughout the world still pursue the path of so-called victory through violence and pride and domination. And because of this, so much of our world is still ravaged in war and fear and suffering caused by the ways of mankind. And war still brings a dark cloak of uncertainty and unsettledness and peril for those still caught up in it throughout our world. And yet for us, even in the West, although we here in Little Creech might not know war right now, we too would recognise we live in a time of uncertainty, don't we? of unsettledness. Something is not right right now. It's a time of fear for many. 
a time of national and international political upheaval, time of a rise of nationalism again, and far-right groups in Europe, just as we've seen before, the erosion of truth and integrity, prideful, boastful, arrogant leadership, violent crime, climate change, inequality, injustice, wars, and that's just the world around us. Friends, I know many of us here will be facing challenges and changes and struggles at home or at work, with our health or with our family, and we feel uncertain and anxious and deeply unsettled. It's at times like this that we look for something to give us certainty and hope. Something we can cling on to because we realise how vulnerable we are and how short this life is. And we look to something to give us a sense of confidence our confidence in time of peril. Do you know, in the Second World War, it was those bells we heard a recording of at 11 o'clock today. The BBC uh, broadcast Big Ben, the bell Big Ben being chimed, Westminster, across occupied Europe. And it became a symbol that London still stands. It became a symbol to those who had this overwhelming darkness that they were fighting and living in, those at home and those abroad. It became a symbol that London still stands. And whilst London still stands and we hear those bells chiming, there is still hope. There is still confidence. And yet, friends, Big Ben is just a bell. It's even a cracked bell. They cracked it when they put it up and had to turn it round, didn't they? And even London, in all its power and splendour, was nearly razed to the ground. It too became vulnerable and a broken city under the strain and darkness of war. I wonder, where are you looking at in this time of uncertainty and unsettledness? Where is the source of your confidence and your hope, of our confidence and hope? Is it Johnson or Corbyn? Or Swinson? Did he mention those names in church? I did. Is it science or technology or military might? Is it your own capabilities? Are you looking to your own strategies or wisdom or strength? Some of these are going to play a part in bringing goodness and some form of peace at times to this world. We don't give up. We don't just go, there's nothing we can do. We work hard to make this world a better place in the power and the strength of the Spirit living in us. But, friends, all of these things will fail at some point. All of these things are human. Yet there is one source that will never fail. And today I just want to say it again. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what you're facing, no matter how frightening the situation, no matter how dark the times, that source of confidence and hope is Jesus the one who stands victorious right now in heaven, the one who has defeated sin, who has defeated the enemy, the one who's defeated death and won us the victory, stands firm and unshaken and strong and filled with what? With grace and truth still. Filled with love. He is the one who calls us to the way of life by putting our trust and confidence firmly in him, not in ourselves, not in the ways of man, but in him just as that reading was at first when we heard about Stephen, it seemed like his choice to follow Jesus had led him to the way of death. As those stones were thrown at him, 
Yet he looked up and he saw the truth that Jesus stands in heaven victorious. And even though Stephen died in that moment, he went straight to be with Jesus, his saviour, in paradise. It was the way of life he had chosen, not the way of death at all. Death had been defeated. I'm going to ask my friend and our friend part of the fellowship here, Peggy, to come up in just one moment and just share you just a couple of minutes of her testimony. But before she does, I want to make it so clear again this morning, friends, that whilst in heaven Jesus stands, death does not have the final word. Darkness does not conquer. The ways of violence and pride and domination may seem to have short-term gains, but they do not have the final victory. Not whilst in heaven he stands, and may I tell you, he's going nowhere. He's going nowhere. Nowhere. So no matter what you face in this world, if your confidence is firmly in Jesus, then your confidence is in the one who says, I have overcome the world. So where is your confidence this morning? Peggy, do you mind? Just share very, very briefly your testimony with us. I want to take us back to 1940s in Bristol. And um, it was a war-torn city, as you know. And it was a place where I lived with my family. And we had air raids, we had noise, we had to get up in the night and go down to the basement and make tea and sleep in improvised beds. We heard the rattle of the um, guns from the back. And in the morning we picked up the shrapnel. (laughs) I was young and growing up at that time and going to school. My dad's business had been bombed that night, one night. My school had been bombed. We didn't lose any children, but they were evacuated from there. And also, I had lost my big brother, Cliff. He was the eldest in the family of seven, and he was very brave. I was so proud of him in his RAF uniform. He was in the fleet air arm. And um, when he was 25, he died. And then later on in the war, 1945, very near the end, my dad came in when we were having tea one day and he put his arms around me and wept. I'd never seen him cry before. And he said, Norman's died too. And that was another brother in the RAF. And at 13, I just started to think for the first time, perhaps, about these things. And then the war ended. But against that background, in my young life, the peril, the fear of dying had come close. Could be me. One day in our church, 
1946, one night, evening service, a young American, 27 years old, came to preach. His name was Billy Graham. And as soon as he could get across the Atlantic, he came. And I was too shy to walk to the front, but I could not get out of the church without shaking his hand. <clears throat> and he looked down at me and he said, Were you saved tonight? I needed that. It was a little jog for someone who'd become complacent and everything was easy. It was time. It was time for me to really think this through. And I realized at last that God was calling me. He was knocking on my heart. He was saying, can I come in? And he'd waited outside through all those years of Sunday school church and goodness knows what. Why was he waiting? What was he waiting for? He was waiting for me to respond. He doesn't push his way into our lives. He waits for us to invite him. And he wanted me, he was saying, will you be mine? And the next day, I was so uncomfortable at school, it kept nagging at me, I've got to do something about this. So in the middle of the night, all by myself, on that Monday night, I decided to talk to God. I knelt and told him I was sorry. I kept him waiting all that time. I'm sorry that I had done wrong things, thought wrong things, said wrong things. I wasn't ready to die. I was afraid to die. And it could have been so because it had come quite close then. But I wanted him to come in and put me right, give me a new start. I wanted Jesus in my life as my friend and my personal saviour. And so I invited him in. Do you know, immediately I had prayed that faltering prayer, I felt safe. I knew he was there. I knew that he was, I was his child and I was going to heaven one day and all was well. I had safety, I was at peace and I was absolutely sure that it was done. I ran into God's loving arms that night and he accepted me, wrapped them round me and he's held me ever since. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Amen for that. Friends, can I invite you to stand, please, if you're able? Just as you stand here, just take a moment. 
And let me ask you again, where is your confidence placed this morning? Because if your confidence and your trust is in Jesus, then your sins are forgiven and your life with him is assured. If your confidence and trust is in Jesus, then you have a sure and certain hope that will see you through. Loving arms that will never let go of you. And if your confidence and your trust is in Jesus, then you can know safety and peace amidst the peril and uncertainty of this life. And know that one day, when this life is over, you will be with him forever in the most beautiful safety, celebration and joy as he wipes every tear from your eye and you realise the victory the enormity of what he has truly done. So let us pray together. I invite you to pray in your hearts as I pray out loud. And if you know and love the Lord, then pray this prayer again this morning as a commitment again that he is your Lord and your Saviour and your friend. And maybe for the first time, I just want to ask you, the Lord never pressurises anyone, as Peggy said, But is this morning the moment where you realise it's time for me to trust Jesus for myself? Nobody else can do it for you. Is this morning the morning and the moment where you realise you want to put your trust in the one who will never fail, the one who hung on that cross for you, who paid the price for everything you've done, who is for you, not against you, and who is with us now and listening as we pray. Let's pray together and just pray in quiet in your heart if you so choose to. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you made this beautiful, incredible world that we live in. And yet, Lord, we are sorry for all that we have done to contribute to the hurt and brokenness and pain and suffering we see all around. Lord, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong, for the mistakes I've made, for the mess I've made of it all, for the pride, for the arrogance, just for getting it wrong so often. And Lord, I want to thank you that you came to earth and you hung on that cross for me and you paid the price for all that I have done and you have taken it away. Lord, thank you that I am forgiven because of you. I choose to make you my Lord and my Saviour. I ask you to come into my heart and change my life. I ask now to begin that journey with you from this day forward as my saviour, my lord, my friend, my safety, my hope and my future. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.